to us, preserved from John chapter 21. The Gospel of John is the fourth Gospel in the New Testament, and this is the last chapter in that fourth Gospel. We're going to read the whole chapter, which is really the chapter following the, the story of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, <clears throat> where the women go to the tomb and they find the tomb empty, and Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, and then to the disciples in the upper room and Thomas isn't there and then Jesus comes back a week later and appears when Thomas is there and he makes that magnificent confession about who Jesus is, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says in verse 29, Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miracles, John says, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And if they were written down, then I guess the world, you know, couldn't contain all of them. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John chapter 21 continues. Afterward, Jesus appeared also to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, uh, Peter Thomas, also called Didymus, or the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, oh, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, uh, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? And they said, no, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around, around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of your fish that you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Push the pause button. John, when he writes that in verse 14, does not mean this is the third appearance that Jesus gave, historically speaking. John is saying, this is the third story that I am telling you. This is the third time in my story, in the gospel, that Jesus has appeared to the disciples. Moving on. Verse 15. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself. You went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands 
and someone else will dress you and I'll lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Jesus turned, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was also following them. This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumour spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he wouldn't die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If any, every one of them was written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Amen. This is God's word to us on this Easter Sunday. And this Sunday, Easter Sunday, I want us to remember one sentence. So for those of you who don't know me, I used to be a school teacher, and so a little bit of the school teacher is coming out in me. This is the sentence I want you to get. So we're going to repeat it. We're going to learn it. And you're going to test each other on it at the end. Here is the sentence. Jesus' resurrection is a fact of history. And therefore... There is good news for everyone. Got it? Jesus' resurrection is a fact of history. And therefore, there is good news for everyone. I want you to turn to the person beside you and I want you to tell them. Okay. Ladies, after three, I want you to say it. One, two, three. Not bad. Men, after two, one, two. <laughs> Let me tell you what I just heard. Ladies, one, two, three. Jesus' resurrection is a fact of history, and there is good news for everyone. Men, one, two. <laughs> Jesus' resurrection is a fact of history. And because of that, there is good news for everyone. We live in a time in our century, in our world, when truth is becoming getting squeezed into this. Uh, relativistic framework. Everything is becoming relative. It's not whether it's true or not true. We're very reluctant to say things are not true in our world, not necessarily in our church, but in the world. <clears throat> so if Buddhism is good for you, it's true for you, that's good for you. Or if Christianity is true for you, that's good for you, or whatever, you know, Baha'i is good for them, then that's good for them. And so everything is becoming relative. If it's good for you, and they're using the word true in a sense that means beneficial or helpful, if it's motivating or influencing, not in the sense of it's true as meaning it is space-time historically true. It's a fact. It's real. As opposed to being just meaningful. Rabbi Harold Kushner is perhaps one of many examples of this. He says, and I quote his words, 
He says religious claims can be true the way a great novel is true. It teaches us something valid about the human condition. And even though the characters in the novel never really existed and the events never took place, it's still beneficial. And now that's how some people are seeing Christianity and the story of Jesus' resurrection, that it's true for you, but not necessarily true for me. Christianity is not a story that simply illustrates a truth or motivates others, us to help others. Um, it's true. Something happened in space-time history. Now, I certainly do agree that because if we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that should influence us to be better people. Absolutely. <clears throat> but the Bible teaches us that if the, Christi if the resurrection is not true, if it never happened, if it's fabricated, then Jesus is not worth following. The Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised, then our faith is vain, it's worthless. Our preaching is vain. We are still in our sins and we are of all people most to be pitied. Christianity is true. The resurrection of Jesus is a fact. It's true. It's part of history. And because of the truth of that, there is good news for everyone. Remove the resurrection, remove the good news. I was reading a book on the resurrection the last couple of days by a guy called Michael Lacano. He says this, painting a historical representative portrait of Jesus, painting an historically, sorry, responsible portrait of Jesus, requires the use of historical facts that are regarded as virtually indisputable. If we're going to paint a picture of the historical Jesus, the person who lived back in space-time history, then we have to use the facts which are virtually indisputable from all sources. That's what he's saying. And through the vast amount, thousands of pieces of literature, the vast amount of research which has been done over recent decades and centuries, obviously, they have come to certain bedrock, indisputable facts that if you're going to explain or paint a portrait of the Lord Jesus, then you have to explain these indisputable aspects of his character, of that which is established historically. Here are those facts. There are, there's 12 of them, but in the purpose of his book, he has cut them in half. Number one, Jesus was a miracle worker and an exorcist. Number two... Jesus was uh, God's agent to bring in the kingdom of God. Preached it, he brought it in, it would appear in him. Number three, Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. An indisputable historical fact. Jesus, number four, Jesus died by crucifixion. Number five, Jesus' tomb was empty. Number six, Jesus appeared to his disciples. And related to that, number seven, Jesus also appeared later on to the Apostle Paul. An enemy changed his life. These are the virtual, indisputable, historical aspects to the person of Jesus. That if you're going to paint a portrait of him, you have to explain them and account for them. And if you do your reading, then you will find that the people who do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, who do not think that it's an historical fact, will certainly disagree with those, but will not take all of them into account. They will ignore some of them. For instance, they'll say that Jesus did not die by crucifixion. 
they'll imagine that he passed out, that he swooned. And so they change the facts in order to establish their own theories. I don't know if you saw the ABC documentary of a movie, portrait, whatever, of a man by the name of John Adams last year, I think it was. John Adams was the second president of the United States. An interesting man. Who in 1770, same year that Captain Cook discovered Australia, in 1770 he was a respected lawyer in New England, Boston, America. He was located there when this thing called the Boston Massacre occurred. British troops had killed uh, American troops. and No lawyer in Boston wanted to defend the British soldiers in fear of the public retaliation that would come against them. Everyone, he believed, John Adams thought, was entitled to a fair trial and so he would take them on. He was advised not to, but he did take the case and the public did turn against him and he lost over half his clients. He says this. Facts are stubborn things and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations or the dictums of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. And he went on to court, that's what he said in court, to defend these British soldiers. He was saying, if it's a fact that this soldier did not commit this crime, then it would be inappropriate of us to execute an innocent person. Facts are stubborn things. And whatever may be our wishes or our inclinations or the dictums of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. I've had numerous occasions as a parent, raising my two children, that occasionally uh, they would get upset about something that had happened at school and I would sit them down and I would simply say, what are the facts? What happened? Who said what? Who did what? Not, don't get upset about assumptions, don't get upset about implications, don't get upset about that. What are the facts? And let's deal with the facts. Well, that's what we want to do a little bit this morning, pretty quickly. But I want to get to the second part. Jesus' resurrection is a fact of history. Let's talk about the first part. How do we know it's a fact? Well, here are five. In this passage, John 20 and John 21. When the women went to the tomb that morning, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. That's a verifiable historical fact. Even the enemies of Christianity testify that the tomb was empty. The Jewish people bribed the Roman scholars to say his disciples came and stole the body. Which means, of course, the body was gone and that the tomb was empty. Fact number one. And then the disciples uh, did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead. John chapter 20 verse 2 says Mary Magdalene, the lady who was there the very first time, when she saw the body was gone, she assumed... Someone has taken him away and we don't know where they have put him. They weren't expecting it. John and Peter ran to the tomb. Peter ran inside. He tried putting it together. And when he ran inside, he saw something. He saw something which has baffled us for, and we don't know the answer to it. But it's interesting that it's there because it does give an implication of something. The fact is the tomb was empty. And the fact is that inside the tomb there were still the burial garments wrapped up. That's the fact. What does that mean? And it also says, and the napkin that had been over his face was folded 
or rolled up somehow neatly and was in a place by itself. They're the facts. What does it mean? Well, it certainly implies that grave robbers didn't come in and steal the body. If grave robbers had have come and stolen the body, they would have picked the whole lot up, wouldn't they? Taken it out. Or if they didn't want to do that, then when they undid the bandages, wouldn't they be thrown all over the place? Why would they undo it and then rewrap them neatly if they were going to steal the body? So the fact is, the grave clothes are still there. The implication, what does that mean? Jesus' body was not stolen. There's some other explanation for this. And of course, and we believe, the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. He just materialised through them. In fact, it's C.S. Lewis. Is it C.S. Lewis? I think it's C.S. Lewis. <clears throat> Who says, if we were sitting in the tomb on Sunday, Saturday night, Sunday morning, just before Jesus rose from the dead, we would see the Lord Jesus' body wrapped. And then suddenly, when he rose from the dead, you didn't see him, you know, get up, stretch, and swing his legs over the side and walk out. You didn't see that. The body is wrapped up like an Egyptian mummy. He said, if you had been there and watched it, he imagines that what would have happened is you just would have suddenly have seen the grave clothes collapse under the weight of their own spices and that because the body had now gone. He had risen, disappeared from the tomb. And there is an earthquake and the angel comes and rolls the stone away and sits on it and scares the heck out of the Roman soldiers and they pass out and eventually run away. And as I have said on numerous occasions, quoting somebody else, the stone was not rolled away from the tomb so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away from the tomb so that we could go in and see that he was gone. The tomb was empty. The grave clothes were lying on the ledge where the body used to be. Number three, the Lord Jesus appeared to his disciples. These were not hallucinations, nor are they fabrications. They are under varied circumstances, various locations, various times, and they are to different personalities. He appears to Mary Magdalene in the morning by himself. He appears to Peter in the afternoon. He appears to the disciples in the upper room at night. He appears on the open road to two disciples walking to Emmaus. He appears, excuse me, to the disciples again who are behind closed doors and he just suddenly appears, materialises in front of them. He appears to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. He appears to the disciples on the mountain um, in Galilee. He appears to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And the Apostle Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, that at one time he appeared to over 500 people at once. Crowd, a bit bigger than this. At once. All disciples, all followers. The Lord Jesus appeared. Fact number four, the disciples' lives were changed. They were not expecting the resurrection. We can establish that. They didn't understand the scriptures or what Jesus had predicted about his own uh, death and resurrection. They were fearful. They were despondent. They were doubting. Something changed them. Something transformed them into bold, unashamed witnesses, testifying to the reality of the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. It was the resurrection. They saw him. They touched him. They handled him. They spent 40 days with him after his resurrection. 
And then finally, even Jesus' character, when you study that, what was he like as a person? His teaching, his miracles, his predictions. He was not, not a charlatan. He was not a lunatic. What he said, he did. And what he said would happen, happened. And he said that he would die, that he would be buried, and that he would rise on the third day. And he did. The character of the Lord Jesus, that he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, and he died an atoning sacrificial death. They're the facts. What do they mean? Well, it means there is a God in heaven, just like Jesus taught, who is our creator, and that we got estranged from him through our own choices, through our own sin, and that he made a promise that he would send someone, that he himself would come to pay the penalty for our sin, to reconcile us to himself. And he did. He kept his word. He came in the person of Jesus, who lived an obedient life, who died a sacrificial death, who was buried, who was raised, who appeared to his disciples, who gave them various commandments and was teaching them about the kingdom of God, who ascended into heaven, who was seated at the right-hand side of God, who will one day return. The resurrection historical facts verify all that the scriptures had taught and proclaimed that he would do. Christ's resurrection is a fact of history. And because of that, number two, there is good news for everyone. There is good news for those who have weak faith or questions or doubts. Jesus' resurrection points to that. Remember the story of Thomas? Jesus appeared when Thomas wasn't there. I'd never thought about it before, but my guess is Jesus did that deliberately. I can't say this is factual, so it's conjecture. My guess is, my conjecture is, Jesus knows Thomas just like he knows all of us. And he knew the struggles that Thomas was having. And so Jesus appeared to the disciples when Thomas wasn't there. So that Thomas would have a whole week where he would have to wrestle with his questions, with his doubts, with the implications of why did that happen. And then... He, in fact, says, and Thomas is wonderful. He's not doubting Thomas. He's honest, Thomas. And perhaps you've got questions and perhaps you've got doubts. Well, we encourage you to be honest. Uh, Christianity doesn't kiss your brains goodbye. Christianity asks you to use your brains and your intelligence just not to um, rely totally upon them, but to leave the possibility open that there are things that we don't understand but need to embrace as being true. Thomas is one such character. And he said to the disciples, I refuse to believe unless I put my fingers in his holes in his hands and put my hand in his side. I will not believe. For seven days, he's listening to all these other people talk to him. And eventually, the Lord Jesus comes seven days later, the next Sunday, and appears in the same upper room. And this time, Thomas is there. And Thomas, Jesus, again, through closed doors, just suddenly materialises in their presence. And they realise it's him. And he comes straight over to Thomas and he repeats the words to Thomas that Thomas had said the Sunday before. Jesus knew. Jesus was listening. He hears us. He said, Thomas, be no longer unbelieving, but come, place your finger in my hand and put your fist in my side. Be no longer unbelieving. Thomas then, we're not told that he actually did it because the appearance may have been enough. He falls to his knees and he proclaims to the Lord Jesus, my Lord and my God. He puts it together. He understands exactly who Jesus is.
The resurrection of the Lord Jesus is good news for those who have weak faith or doubts. The Lord Jesus encourages you to ask your questions and that he will uh, allow circumstances in your life to deepen your faith. He'll take you on a journey where you'll find the reality is found in him. Number two, good, the resurrection is good news for those who are aimless or who feel they're inadequate, particularly those of us who are already followers of the Lord Jesus and we feel we can't do ministry, we, we can't do it in our own strength. These seven guys are feeling aimless. And Peter says, what are we going to do? And he says, let's go fishing. That's what they had done professionally for many, many years and maybe even now as a hobby. And the others said, we're going with you. They just didn't know what to do. They went fishing, they failed. Again, I think this is deliberate. And Jesus knew it was allowing and he allowed it to happen. They failed. And then he appears on the beach and he says to them, put the net on the other side. It's a repeat of what happened way back in the beginning, three years ago, when he first called them to come and be his disciples. It's a repeat of that. That you have ability to fish, but you can't do ministry without me, without my instruction, without my influence, without us doing it together. As they follow his instructions, let the net down on the other side, they do, they catch 153 fish. When they follow his instructions, they are successful. That, I think, is the point of the story. The, good, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is good news for those of us who serve him, but we may feel aimless or we may feel inadequate. <clears throat> we simply need to be in touch with him, to yield our resources to him, and that he'll take them and use them, and he'll supply, he'll make it successful. The Lord Jesus loves to use inadequate people who yield everything to him. That's his track record. The, good, the resurrection is good news for those who are weak in faith, for those who are feeling aimless or inadequate. <clears throat> the, good news, uh, the resurrection is good news for those who have failed. And this is the story, the second story here of Peter. For those who have failed. There is a charcoal fire. Again, this is a repeat. There was another charcoal fire where the apostle Peter in the upper room, <clears throat> in the outside the room where the Lord Jesus was being tried and the servant girls asked him a question. He was warming his hands at a charcoal fire and the memories and the smells would have all come back for him and he was asked three times, do you know Jesus? And he denied knowing him three times. And here in this story, we have a charcoal fire and you have the Lord Jesus asking three questions. Do you love me? Three times because of the three denials. And there are three responses, three confessions. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then there are three commissions. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. What does all of this mean? The Lord Jesus has questioned Peter three times. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you truly love me? Two things. One, for those of us who have failed, the Lord Jesus wants us to love him supremely. To love him more than anything else. To love him more than our trade or our occupation or our jobs. To love him more than we love our family or that we even love our closest companions or other believers. To love him... <clears throat> more as best we are capable of doing not comparing ourselves to others not comparing ourselves saying i love jesus more than you love jesus i do more for jesus than you do not doing that not comparing our love to others 
but it's comparing our love for him compared to our love for other things or other people. Jesus wants us to love him supremely. This is the number one abiding principle before anything else, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. For those who failed, it's a call to come and be embraced by him, to love him, to love him with all our hearts. It's the highest priority. It's the first question. It's the essential question. It's the supreme question. Do you love him? Starts in the beginning of the Bible, Deuteronomy 6. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. It's in the middle of the Bible when Jesus is asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. It's illustrated in Luke 10 with Mary and Martha, two sisters. Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha busily serving in the kitchen, preparing the meal for everybody. And Jesus makes a comment about Mary that she has chosen the essential. She's chosen the important thing. Only one thing is important, Jesus said, and Mary has chosen the best part, to love him. It's at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4 when the Lord Jesus talks about the church in Ephesus, a magnificent church, a large church, a very successful church that had senior pastors like Timothy and John and even Paul was there for three and a half years, a significant church in the first century. At the end of the first century, the Lord Jesus says, I see your programs, I see your ministry, I see your evangelism, I see your commitment to truth and to doctrine. It's all outstanding, but I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. It's the essential. It's the most important. It's the priority. And these questions to Peter remind us of that, that Jesus wants to be loved supremely. Jesus' resurrection is good news for everyone. It's good news for those of us who have failed. It's good news for us that we are recommissioned, recalled, like Peter, to recommit ourselves to loving him. So that's a question for us. Where are you and your relationship with Jesus? Do you love him? Do you love him supremely? He wants to be. He deserves to be. And then secondly, flowing out of that, Every time Peter answers the question, the Lord Jesus commissions him, gives him a job to do. Jesus wants to be loved actively. Love him supremely. Love him actively. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Unless we are tending his sheep, feeding his lambs, we do not love him as he wants to be loved. Here is that amazing vertical, horizontal link, which is so consistent through the scriptures to love God and to love his people and to love others and for that to be demonstrated in our lives. Karl Barth who was one of the most significant theologians of the 20th century a man who grew up in a uh, adverse circumstances but who found faith and um, wrote volumes and volumes and volumes there are certainly things he wrote and believed that we would be a little bit uncomfortable with we didn't think he came far enough but given his background and his environment, and he was heading in the right direction, did a tour of the world once of the United States. He was invited to give some lectures. <clears throat> when he was in Chicago, somebody asked him a question. Dr. Bart, with all your writings, with all your readings, what do you think is the most essential theological truth you have ever discovered? What is the most essential, most important theological truth you have ever discovered? 
He paused, he thought, and then he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. One of the most intelligent men, certainly one of the brightest theologians of the 20th century, reduces his faith down to, Jesus loves me and I love him. And that's what it's about. That's what the resurrection of Jesus, this passage reminds us of. That Jesus wants us to love him supremely and to love him actively. Before I let this go, flowing on from this, <clears throat> Jesus does something with the Apostle Peter. And John records it, and I think significantly. In verse 19, then Jesus said uh, this to indicate to Peter what sort of death he was going to die. And then he said to Peter, follow me. And then Peter turned saw the disciple, whom Jesus loved, was following them, and says, what about him? And Jesus says, don't worry about him, you follow me. What's that about? Why is that story included here in this, at the end of the gospel, when it's talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? Well, as you reflect upon it, as I reflected upon it, this is what I have discovered. That Jesus wants us, he wants Peter and us to follow him regardless of our past. Peter, Peter had failed terribly, publicly, had blown it, would have been out of ministry, would not have found his way back with the disciples. He stumbled. He blundered. And Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is good news for those who have messed up, for those who have lost their way, who have made mistakes, who have committed sins or gotten deep into some situations, gotten smudges on their souls. He calls us to abandon that, to love him, and to follow him. And he says, those who come to me, I will not cast out. There is a beautiful verse in Matthew chapter 20, 12. That's where, <clears throat> it's a, a quote from the prophet Isaiah. And it's talking about Jesus, the coming Messiah, the character of what he's like. And the prophet says, a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking flax he will not quench. Different world, different illustrations. A bruised reed is a reed which is meant to be strong and straight, which has a purpose, but this one's bruised. It's somehow bent and therefore is helpless. It's broken. And a smoking flax is like a candle, a light, and the flax is not a light, it's just smoking. It's just irritating. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's useless. And what you often do with that is you snuff it out. And what do you do with a broken reed? You throw it away. When the prophet says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. That which is hopeless and broken, that which is useless and irritating, he doesn't discard. He restores. Follow him. Follow him. 
regardless of your past, the passage is saying. It also says, two other things, follow him regardless of the cost. Jesus said to Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. I've just spent a few days with my grandchildren in Sydney. They dress themselves the way they want. It's not fit for public consumption. And they go wherever they want. The Bible says you've got to train up a child in the way they go. Mm. <clears throat> well, Peter, you used to do that when you were younger. When you were older, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and they will lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Church tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down at his own request. And the Lord Jesus is saying, follow me regardless of the cost. Whatever the future holds for us, follow me. It's not likely for us living in Australia that any of us will be called to die for the Lord Jesus. It's not impossible, but at this stage in human history, it's not very likely that's going to happen. But we are called to live for him, and sometimes that can be harder. To live for him unashamedly, stand up for him in all the circumstances and situations of life, to live for him. The Moravian church had a symbol of an ox. And on one side of the ox was an altar, and on the other side of the ox there was a plough. And the words underneath read, ready for either. Ready for either. Ready to offer my life as a sacrifice and to die. Ready to take my hands to the plough and to serve. Ready for either. Jesus says, follow me regardless of the cost whatever the future may bring. And then finally, the Lord Jesus says, follow me regardless of what others do. Peter turns round. What about John? What about him? Jesus makes a comment. It's not your concern. He's got a different future. God has a different plan for each one of us. What I have called you to do, focus upon that. And Peter, what I want you to do is to follow me. Do what I instruct you to do. Whether they do it or leave it undone, that's up to them. But you follow me. Jonathan Edwards, a great theologian, he wrote 70 resolutions. A man with a vast intellect who used to reflect and make commitments and to the best of my knowledge um, stuck to them. Died in his early 50s, sadly. He wrote these two resolutions. Number one, everyone ought to obey Christ without hesitation or reservation. Everyone ought to obey Christ without hesitation or or reservation. I agree. Resolved second. Whether anybody else does it or not, I will. So help me God. Everyone ought to obey Christ without hesitation or reservation. Whether anybody else does it or not, I will. So help me God. The Lord Jesus says, follow me regardless of what others do. You follow me. Jesus' resurrection is a fact of history. And because of that, there is good news for everyone. There's good news for those who are weak in faith. It's good news for those who are aimless or feeling inadequate. It's good news for those who have failed. 
For all of us, he calls us to love him supremely and actively, to follow him, regardless of our past, regardless of the cost, and regardless of what others do. John chapter 20, verse 29, John's, Jesus says, Because you guys have seen me, you believe. Thomas. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's us. Does that include you? The resurrection of Christ is a fact of history and is good news for everyone. Let's pray.